Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Amanda Branch. We're your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Bereskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at bereskinparr.com slash podcasts. Go there and you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. Now let's tune into today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Micheline Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin and Parr LLP. And I'm absolutely thrilled today to have Dr. Larry Richard as a guest today, where we will discuss wellness in law, a topic that's really important to me as well as to our firm. So Larry is a former litigator turned psychologist and is the founder of Lawyer Brain LLC. Larry is recognized as the leading expert on the psychology of lawyer behavior, and I find his work utterly fascinating. So much so that I hired him a few years ago to work with our firm. So thank you so much, Larry, for joining me today. And uh, maybe you can start by just sharing some of the work you've done and studying lawyers and their personalities. Sure. Happy to do that, Michelin. And thanks for inviting me today. So I got interested in lawyers' personalities um, when I was about two years old because I grew up in a family of lawyers. And uh, most of the people at the extended family holiday table were lawyers. Um, so it's something that I was very familiar with, and I was always curious about what makes us tick. And I went into the practice of law thinking I would love it and ended up not enjoying it so much. And so after 10 years of uh, frustration, I changed careers to my first true love, which is psychology. And I decided to study us. And so uh, it's now getting close to 30 years that I've been gathering data, personality data on lawyers. And it's fascinating what I find. There's this just consistent through line that the people who go into the legal profession are dramatically different from the general public in certain ways and very similar to each other in those ways. And those idiosyncratic qualities actually make it easier for us to practice high quality law and make it more challenging to do a lot of the other things that we have to do these days, like leadership and mentoring people. You maybe just share with us some of the common traits that you found in studying the personalities of lawyers. And as you know, we're an IP firm. I think some of the data may extend also to patent agents or patent attorneys. Mm -hmm. So if you can share some of the common traits you see in the lawyer personality. Sure, uh, happy to do that. So let's let's first frame this. Uh, you're absolutely right that patent agents. Uh, I've worked with quite a number of patent agents in Canada, both in law firms and in a couple of legal departments in tech companies up there. And what I found is that patent agents are almost indistinguishable from IP lawyers. They there really is not much difference in their personality. Uh, including the outlier lawyer traits and the normal distribution of traits. So um, I've used a lot of different assessments over the years. Um, my doctoral research looked at the Myers-Briggs and a cross-section of 3,000 lawyers across the entire U.S. Um, in the last 28 years, I've used mainly a test called the Caliper Profile, uh, which you're familiar with because we use yes. it in your firm. And uh, it has 18 different traits. Now, to understand how lawyers are outliers, it, it helps to understand that in an assessment like this, each of the 18 traits is reported on a scale that goes from zero to 100, basically a percentile scale. 
and the percentile means you're being compared. So what are you being compared to? A database of people like you. So it's really highly educated knowledge workers in the professions and in you know leadership roles in business. So if you were to get, say, a 70% uh, a score on cautiousness, that would mean you're more cautious than 70% of this database that we're looking at. So each trait is scaled in that way. Now, if you take thousands or even millions of people like Caliper has studied, there's what's called regression to the mean, which means high scores and low scores cancel out. And for a database like they have of close to 7 million people, you get an average of 50% for each of the 18 traits. Now, let's say you don't have 7 million people to look at. You only have a smaller group like an occupation, say accountants or uh, teachers. Those subgroups would still have that tendency to have each of their 18 traits score around 50, but it wouldn't be exactly. You might have 45 or 52. But one thing I can guarantee is that in almost every occupation, all 18 traits would average within what we call the standard deviation, kind of the guardrails, which in this particular test is between 40 and 60%. So every trait, you'd expect the average score to be between 40 and 60, with one notable exception. And I'm sure you know which occupation that exception is. Lawyers, <laughs> as I started studying with this test uh, in the 90s, literally six of the 18 traits were outliers four of them were above 60 percent on average and the average for lawyers was below 40 percent on the other two and now fast forward in the last three years one of those traits that was always low now has solidly and consistently scored as the seventh outlier below 40 percent so what are these seven traits mm -hmm. Yes. The first one won't surprise anyone listening, which is high skepticism. Because uh, if you're not were, surprising, <laughs> if you're listening at this point, we're saying, you know, this sounds like a crock. This sounds like hot air. <laughs> then the next point, when I say skepticism is your stock and trade, that they're probably going to go, huh? Well, you got me. Because this is the essence of what we do as lawyers. We have to think skeptically in order to protect our clients. We have to challenge assertions. We have to scrutinize any data and you know, ask the question like, what's the exception? Don't worry about the 95% that looks fine. What's that 5% that could get us in trouble? We have to challenge people's motives and we do that for good reasons. But if that's what you do all day, it really helps if your personality, your disposition is already skeptical instead of taking an average person and asking them to do the heavy lifting of high skepticism. So that's what we get, high skepticism. But as we've discussed many times, you and I, skepticism works really great for practicing law and for being a patent agent, but it ain't so good for leadership or mentoring or other things that require relationships. If I'm skeptical with you and I'm a leader, you're going to be skeptical with me and I will not get your buy-in. So it's really challenging. What's the next trait? Lawyers have extraordinarily high autonomy needs. Everybody wants some freedom to make their own choices and to pull their own strings, so to speak. 
so the average would be 50%. That's a, a good, decent need for autonomy. But lawyers have an 89% autonomy. We're basically walking around saying, don't you dare tell me what to do. <laughs> and so we're really, really resistant to guidance. That's why we always joke that managing lawyers is like herding cats, because you mm -hmm. just can't get them to do what you want. I always like this other metaphor. One of a managing partner that I work with uh, once said to me, he was from Atlanta, and he said, Larry, while managing lawyers is like pushing a wheelbarrow full of frogs. If you can, if you can picture that metaphor. Yeah. Uh, the, the third trait is high abstract reasoning. Lawyers are very, very bright. They're about one to two standard deviations above the general public in IQ. And that makes them very interested in analyzing and in scrutinizing and in mental stimulation and intellectual challenge. This is what we love about practicing law. But it also comes along with argumentation. So lawyers just love arguing for the fun of it, not because the point itself matters greatly. They, you know, 10 minutes later, many of the arguments, they won't even remember what the point was. It's just fun to show that I'm smarter than you or I'm right and you're wrong. That's what we do. Um, the fourth trait is high urgency. Lawyers are impatient. Some of your listeners are probably thinking, you know, you're really just going into way too much detail for my taste. You could have just given us a list of these darn traits and be done. That's high urgency. We don't want to be where we are. We want to be where we're going. We want to cut to the chase. And we sometimes finish other people's sentences because we're not just urgent. We're also at high in abstract reasoning. So we see where somebody's going with the point they're making. And we go, yeah, yeah, I get it. Right. Well, I think you might recall, I was very high on urgency and that's something I've been working on for the last several years. Yeah, so how's it going? It something, it's going well, <laughs> I, th <laughs> I think. Yeah, well, I am too, Miss Lynn. And uh, so, so that's why I want to finish the last three traits, which are, <laughs> uh, so the first four we talked about were the ones that are above 60% on average. What are the three traits that are now averaging below 40? So the first one is low sociability. Lawyers are very, very private people. High sociability is somebody who's very interested in revealing private, maybe vulnerable things about themselves so that they can deepen an authentic connection with another people, with another people, another person. If a lawyer is low in sociability, that sentence that I just stated is off-putting to that lawyer. Lawyers who are low in sociability don't like anything that has words like emotional, vulnerable, connection, intimate. Uh, you know, those are turnoffs to a low sociability person. They want to keep emotions far, far away. They want to keep relationships far away. They see relationships as touchy-feely rather than as substantive, which is quite unfortunate because the research shows that social connection, ongoing authentic relationships are probably the single most important predictor of all good things that humans want. So that's only recent research in the last 15, 20 years. And uh, I can see why, you know, we built a uh, kind of a, a cultural norm in the legal profession that relationship stuff is touchy feely, but it's wrong. It's just wrong. Um, number, number six is low resilience. Lawyers are very thin skinned. High resilience has to do with 
How do we react when, when someone criticizes or rejects us? The high resilience person doesn't really take it in. They don't feel wounded by it. It's just like, yeah, whatever. And then they get over it quickly. But a low resilience person feels very vulnerable, very wounded, very easily hurt. If you criticize a low resilience person, they may ruminate for days or even weeks. They may keep coming back and saying, you know, you, you, you accuse me of this. I didn't ever do that. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Oh, come on. We've, we've buried the hatchet on that. You don't even have to talk about that. No, no, I want to, I want to just, you know, justify my position. I want to show you why you're wrong. That's low resilience. And this is a stunning statistic, Michelin. Not only are lawyers lower than the public, the public, of course, for all these traits, averages a 50 percentile. The average for lawyers on resilience is 30 percent. So we're pretty low, but it doesn't look like your classic bell curve with a hump in the middle. It looks like a skewed bell curve with everything leaning to the left, to the lower end of the scale. In other words, my data consistently show, and this is the most consistent trait of all the traits I've measured, Consistently for 28 straight years, lawyers have averaged 30% instead of 50, and 90% of lawyers have scored in the lower 50%. Nine out of 10 lawyers are thin skinned. When I tell groups of lawyers that statistic and they feel bad, it illustrates the trait of low resilience. Mm -hmm. So we are a thin skin occupation. And that has big implications, which I think we'll get to talk about in a little mm -hmm. bit. So the seventh trait that, you know, the third one that's below 40% is cognitive empathy. So what is cognitive empathy? First, to help understand, there are two kinds of empathy that have been studied. One is called emotional empathy, and we don't really measure that. It's actually the empathy that most people think of when you say the word empathy without a modifier. Emotional empathy is stepping into the emotions of somebody else. I can feel your pain. And that's very common. Everybody has the capacity to do that. Most of us use it. We feel sympathy for somebody else. Same idea. Uh, emotional empathy and sympathy are often interchangeable. Cognitive empathy, by contrast, is using your intellect. It's using a different part of your brain. It's using your reasoning capacity to step into the shoes of somebody else, to take their perspective, to ask questions like, how is what I'm about to say or do going to land? How does my behavior impact you? What do you need? What are the things that you're concerned about? If I do X um, and you do Y, how do those two behaviors um, coordinate with each other? Um, if I'm walking through a doorway in, the, in a public place, do I look behind me to see that the door won't slam into the person behind me? That's cognitive empathy. It's I'm taking the perspective. I'm aware that somebody else is having an experience that is impacted by what I do or say. Uh, lawyers have always been low on this. They've averaged 41%. But remember, to be an outlier, it has to be below 40. So I always talk about it as a low trade, but not an outlier. Well, empathy has been dropping in the general population around the world. Empathy around the world is dropping like a stone. There's one study, Michelin, that says that ten, you know, ten, as of 10 years ago, millennials, people born from 1982 to around the year 2000, that cohort has 40%, 40%, 40% less 
cognitive empathy than the previous generation. And lawyers, in my research, show the same thing, that the, the empathy score has been dropping, and it's mainly been dropping among younger lawyers. Wow, so that's, that's why, very sad to hear. <laughs> it is sad to hear. Or, um, you know, so, so why is that? Why is empathy so low? And we, we don't have definitive explanations, but we have a couple of um, research papers that suggest that the way that empathy is learned is when you're playing as a kid. So imagine you're in the schoolyard and you're, you know, at a break and you're playing and your friend says something mean to you and you, your face turns to kind of a crestfallen face. You look hurt. And your friend sees that and goes, oh, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. And now they stop and reflect about that moment in time and they make an adjustment. So the next time, maybe they'll phrase it differently. We learn cognitive empathy by seeing the emotional reactions of people, usually face-to-face -face in the playground. Well, two problems. Number one, schools all over the world, because of budgetary cuts and other reasons, have curtailed the amount of playtime that kids get. And number two, from those born from around 1993 onward, grew up using texting as their main modality for communicating with their friends. Text doesn't have any video. Text doesn't show or transmit any emotions. It's only digital data, words. And so kids really aren't exposed to the important emotional feedback that our generations learn to use to build that cognitive empathy muscle. Now, it can still be built. I mean, it's, it's a learnable skill, but there's a whole generation that seems to have not naturally learned it, with a couple of exceptions. Um, so it's, it's an issue in, if you're managing a law firm, um, cognitive empathy is very important. It's important in leadership because a leader has to understand his or her constituents. It's important in business development because you, you need to stop talking if your, you know, your potential client's eyes are glazing over. Uh, you need to understand other people in just about everything. And the, the, the substantive aspects of practicing law, cognitive empathy is very important in anticipating how a judge might rule on your, on your motion requires the use of cognitive empathy. Selecting a jury requires the use of cognitive empathy. So it's a very important business trait and it's unfortunate that it's sunk so low. And yeah, no, it is very important in business, but I'm glad to hear you say it can be learned because that, that gives yes. us all hope. Um, because you know what we want to talk about today is wellness. So I was going to ask you how all of these traits impact wellness. And I guess specifically maybe focusing on resilience and empathy. Because I do remember well you telling me that both these things can be learned. So it's an area that I, you know, I feel strongly about uh, teaching to lawyers. So maybe yep. you can say a few words about that. And so let's add wellness. one other trait, which is skepticism, because skepticism oh. is where lack of well-being starts. Skepticism is our training in law school. It's it's kind of got a double layer because what we do as lawyers is think skeptically for reasons that are good to, to protect our clients. But 
the second layer is people who are dispositionally skeptical. People who have skeptical personalities are attracted at a much higher rate to the legal profession because it's where somebody mm -hmm. with that kind of personality can can thrive. Mm -hmm. So we have the first layer of it's what you do and what you're trained to do and you get reinforced to do. And then you've got the layer of personality. So this is a major skeptical group of people. And skepticism, unfortunately, comes with a downside. And that is when you're constantly teaching your brain how to look for problems, it atrophies the capacity to look for good stuff. And so we're training people to have a hunt for the bad stuff mindset. That is in effect training people how to be depressed because depression is, there, there are actually many different kinds of depression, but most depression is, is based on a loss of connection to positivity, connection to other people in an emotional way, connection to values. And so when you teach people to think negatively, you increase the likelihood that other people aren't going to want to hang around them. So they lose connection. You also um, make it easier for people to slide down the spectrum toward loneliness and ultimately toward depression and toward anxiety. Those are all tied up in that. Now, factor in low resilience, <clears throat> and you have on top of the skepticism, someone who doesn't do well when they move down to those more pathological ways of thinking, they just start ruminating about how bad they feel. And that even makes more people unlikely to hang around them. So they feel more isolated. And then they try to win support from other people, but they don't understand what other people need so that they, because their empathy is low. So they can't figure out how do I win people over? And it's just this constant iterative cycle of driving other people away and polarizing. And that, you know, that can kind of set the, the background context for well-being declining. And then you have on top of that, you know, you, you know as well as I do that over the past four years, there's been a renewed interest in this profession on lawyer well-being. And it's triggered by increased stress that we're all under, and the pandemic has really kicked that up a notch, increased um, complexity of the work that we're doing, which means we now have to work with other lawyers much more closely, more commonly. You can't do everything yourself. And working with other people introduces more challenges that are interpersonal, and we don't have those interpersonal skills, so that's stressful. And I can go on and on. I mean, there are many, many factors that just make it much more challenging to be a healthy person who feels happy and well in the climate that we're in today. There's much more pressure from clients, for example. I mean, there are many, many factors that are yeah. all going in the same direction that are putting stresses on practitioners. I just saw a statistic before I joined our call today of a study that was done uh, by the International Bar Association. And this goes across many different countries. And what they showed is that younger lawyers, 10 years out and less, uh, have 75% of them are reporting high levels, clinical levels of psychological distress. 
That's very, very troubling. That's really troubling. I mean, I've read a lot of statistics about the increased anxiety, depression, even suicide rates higher amongst lawyers. There's a lot of very, very depressing statistics out there, but maybe we can turn this around and tell them about some of the good things they can do to increase their wellness, um, working with their, their personality traits. It's hard. You can't change your personality, but you can, I think you can improve it. And that's the exciting thing. Yes. Almost everything that we've been discussing, there are strategies that science has identified that allow you to take control of your own experience and to increase your well-being and even inoculate yourself against future stressors. So what are some of those things? Yes. Number one, social connection is, is number one on the list. The research on social connection, as I mentioned earlier, is um, two, two aspects of this I'll mention, actually three. One is when we have ongoing sustained relationships that are authentic, when we feel like somebody else really sees me for who I am, and I can show my true self without fear of reprisal. You know, maybe I have views that are not popular or I have certain, you know, aspects to my personality or my lifestyle that you may not approve of. If I feel safe, if I feel like I can be myself and I can build a close connection with somebody, that is very sustaining and health-giving. People who have those connections actually live longer and have better immune systems. They're less susceptible to COVID. They're less susceptible to colds and so forth. Number two, um, another aspect of social connection is not not just the long-term relationships that we form, but those momentary interactions with people that we don't have a relationship with. So let's say you're dealing with a, a clerk at the county courthouse, or you're interacting with a client briefly over the phone. How you do those brief interactions matters. And the little moments that you create of positivity accumulate over time. So when you interact with somebody, if you're surly and critical and negative and disagreeable, you're actually hurting both yourself and the person who's mm-hmm. at the other end of your interaction. By contrast, for our French friends, par contre, if you instead are uplifting, you are a good listener, you look for what is working, you compliment people for the things that they're proud of, you reinforce the positive, you rein in your inner critic, those choices are going to improve both your experience and the other person's, both psychologically and physiologically. The third component of social connection is belonging. People have an innate need to feel part of something, feel part of a team, feel part of a group, a work group, part of an office, part of a firm, part of a community. And the more we can take affirmative steps to make people feel like they're part of something, the more that inhibits all of the bad stuff that I mentioned in our earlier part of this conversation. This is especially important during COVID because a lot of people are still working in quarantine or working you know, from home instead of in the office. And we lose those little day-to-day interaction moments that are so valuable, but we often think of as throwaway. So 
you can replace them through video calls with people. Instead of just being all business, you can talk about, hey, how, how are you doing? So before we got on this call, we, you know, spent a few minutes shooting the breeze with each other and hi, how you doing? How have you been? That sort of thing. That's not just small talk. It's an unfortunate label. That's vital. It really helps um, smooth the connections out. Um, what else besides social connection can you do? Gratitude is something that's been studied for several decades. And it seems like such an easy thing. It costs nothing. And it doesn't, it doesn't really require much training. We know how to do it innately. There are two aspects to gratitude. Both of them are beneficial to our well-being. One is just feeling gratitude. If we stop and reflect on the things that we normally take for granted, just that reflection of, gee, I'm so grateful that I have a roof over my head, that I have a decent income, that I have colleagues that respect me, whatever it is. And then the second part of gratitude is when you, when someone does something for you and they go above and beyond, they do something they didn't have to do, or they do something that was thoughtful on your behalf. Um, you know, a simple thank you is the minimum. And just when, when, you, when you give a simple thank you, you're helping you and the person you're thanking both benefit psychologically. When somebody does something that's a little bit more putting themselves out on your behalf, a longer gratitude statement is called for. Gee, Michelin, it was so nice of you to bring lunch without my asking you. Um, that, you didn't have to do that. And because you extended yourself in that way, I'm so grateful that you did that. I just wanted to let you know you know, that type of statement. Yeah. Um, what else? When we... But I agree with the gratitude. I mean, we've talked about this. I think gratitude yeah. is key. And you've taught me about the three things. And I le love to end my day by thinking of three things that I'm grateful for. But not only is it nice to do that, but and then it finds I find my days I'm searching for that nice thing. So exactly. I'm always on the lookout for gratitude. Oh, that's going to be my thing tonight when I go to bed and I write down my three good things. So I find it just puts you in a positive frame of mind to be looking for things to be grateful for. And they don't have to be earth shattering. You know, I used to start by, I was just doing the biggies, health, um, yep. home, family, but there's little things. I like the taste of my protein shake this morning, you know, little things that I really find it does, does go a long way in making, sure. making you a happier person. This interview is going to be one of my three things. Today. Me too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what else can you do? Um, using your strengths. There's, 75 years of research about the value of strengths in the legal profession, because we have this negative bias, we tend to focus on what people's deficiencies are and how can we fix them. So when you talk about lawyer development, most of lawyer development is you're, you're really not doing as well as you could in legal writing or in verbal, you know, oral presentation skills or in your substantive grasp of this thing. We got to work on you to get up to speed on that. Well, I'm not saying don't focus on that, but what I am saying is the ratio is wrong. Most of us spend a hundred percent, maybe as down to, you know, 80 to a hundred percent on the deficiencies. And what the research shows is that you're much better off spending 80% on strengths 
and helping people figure out what do I do well, how can I get to use what I do well, and how can I get even better at what I do well. Those three things are really, really empowering for people, and they build connection. They build positive emotions, which are antidotes to all the negative stuff that we talked about, and they make people highly engaged in the workplace. If anybody wants an engaged workforce, strengths is one of the most powerful ways to get it. And so those are the things that you can do you know, to help somebody leverage their strengths, find out what they are, label them, and, and leverage them. The whole thing about strengths, and we've put that into place in our firm as well, making sure when we do reviews that we focus on positive and not just um, giving any focus on, on the negative. So I think really thank you for that that piece of yeah. advice that you gave us a few years ago and uh, definitely uh, using it today. Excellent. I think we are running out of time. Um, you have given us some great information on what people and law firms can do to help improve the wellness of, of, the, of the lawyers in the firm. Um, social connection is key, as you said. It's really hard during COVID, and I really implore people to make sure they get on those video calls. I think people are getting a bit of video fatigue, and I notice people turning off their cameras and not wanting to interact or not staying for the social. So I just really like people to take, an, take extra time into law firms to make sure this is happening that you're really trying to engage people you know we're still in lockdown in Canada so there's not a lot of social interaction so that's that's a big takeaway I, I think for me and, and for other firms and gratitude is always always key for me and uh, focusing on the strengths is a great piece of advice I really think that that's also something that firms need to do I always say, you know, law firms just need to have more compassion. You know, we need to have more compassion yep. for the people That's working, true. compassion for other people. I think if we all had more compassion, the world would be a much better place. So um, Indeed. just really want to thank you so much. You always have such great insights and I just, I just love your work. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, they can reach you at, uh, as long, hope you don't mind, the lawyerbrain.com if anybody wants to directly reach out to Dr. Richard. Um, and really, thank you so much again for this great discussion today. Thanks, Michelin. And it's, I'm grateful to you for inviting me. This is really a pleasure to discuss these things in today's yeah. podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And just to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Be safe, be well, and above all, be kind. Thank you. Thank you for an informative episode. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you'll never miss an episode. It's free, and it notifies you when there's a new episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode, presented by Breskin & Parr, LLP. Until next time.